0: how we got to here was incredibly kind of chaotic and serendipitous. We we just stumbled across stuff.
1: If we could start the world from scratch, knowing everything we know now, could we do it better next time? This is the first episode of Starting From Scratch, a thought experiment that imagines a new world where we've been given a second chance to do things differently. This podcast isn't about the apocalypse, how it will happen or what would happen if it did. Instead, it examines how we might rebuild the staples of our societies if we were starting again with a completely blank canvas. However, I am breaking my rule with this first episode uh, because this episode is about the apocalypse because I thought it would be interesting to find out how we'd actually end up with a world that needed rebuilding, and what those first steps would be for those of us emerging from the end of an apocalypse. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Lewis Dartnell, author of The Knowledge. What I explored as a thought experiment in the book, in
0: in The Knowledge, how to rebuild a world from scratch, taking the apocalypse as a premise, imagining that the loss of everything that we just take for granted in our modern modern lives today? Imagine all that disappeared tomorrow and you had to start working out how to do things from scratch for yourself again. So what would be the most useful scientific knowledge you'd want to make sure wasn't lost to history again? You'd have kind of saved and and written down what would be the most useful practical know-how knowledge of, of how to make and do things? And therefore, how could you start pulling yourself back up by your own bootstraps could you after an apocalypse avoid another dark ages and accelerate that recovery that the rebooting of civilization as much as possible if only you had the right condensed store of, of vital information written down and as a conceit that's what the knowledge is it is a single book that you would need that tells you everything about how our civilization works behind the scenes and how you could rebuild it from scratch clearly you wouldn't be able to do that as some kind of Mad Max, Lone Mm -hmm. Wolf. No one one person would be able to do anything by themselves. So kind of Robinson Crusoe wouldn't really work in that sense. But if you had a a community of of survivors that you'd kind of settle down and working together and rediscovering and reinventing and rebuilding what you need,
1: what would that look like? How how could you go about that as effectively as possible? Do you think any of us without reading the book have that level of knowledge to bring all of the aspects of society together if we were to start from scratch because I think personally I'm looking just at the desk in front of me and (laughs) I just don't know how any of it works or is made and I just I don't think I'll ever know (laughs) I think I'd ever figure out if I had all the time in the world Um, I I (laughs) think you're absolutely right and I think that's true of anyone that is
0: no one person that knows enough about enough things in general that they could start, start recovering. And in a sense, that's, that's not because people are lazy or stupid or they, they don't care. That's just the way that our society works. And the reason that we've become so productive and capable as a society, you know, since the kind of 14, since the you know, mid, middle ages, since end of the medieval era, when we stopped being a primarily agrarian culture and started being more urban and went through the kind of scientific revolution and the industrial revolution, the way that we've become so capable as a society is by everyone having a particular job that they do very, very well. And then by networking together, all of those specialities, we all do we do things for each other in, in, this, in this society. So the knowledge of humanity is distributed. It's dispersed amongst everyone. So no one person knows enough of everything. And... I think that's necessary, but I think it also leaves a lot of us feeling a bit kind of dissatisfied. We don't really have a connection to how our lives are supported or how they run anymore. And that's why I wanted to write this book, write the knowledge to peer behind the scenes, to to look behind the curtain of the modern world, if you like, and just explore a little bit about how all of that is done. Like, where does our energy come from? Where do our materials come from? Where does the basic chemistry rely upon come on? How does transport work? How does electricity work to to kind of power our modern lives and how did we get here across the last few centuries of of history as as this thought experiment?
1: And I think for humankind in general we sort of fumbled our way to this point you know we figured things out at random moments in history and eventually we came uh, to the modern era with all of these constructs and designs that perhaps we if we had the knowledge at the start, perhaps we we wouldn't have created in the first place and we wouldn't have these sort of archaic constructs following us. Um, do you think if we were to rebuild from scratch with everything that we know now, we could do things better, tighter and make everything work a little bit smoother? Yes,
0: yeah, so I mean, that is the central point. One of the central points of the knowledge is that how we got to here, how, how we progressed through history, was incredibly kind of chaotic and stochastic and, and serendipitous. We, we just stumbled across stuff that then turned out to be actually really handy um, in terms of scientific discoveries and then how we exploit that understanding to make tools and to make technology and make our lives more comfortable and, and, and more fun. And so the point about the knowledge is if, if you're looking back, if, you, if you've got twenty twenty hindsight, you know what turned out to be the most valuable knowledge and the most useful technologies So if you were restarting from scratch, could you compress that process that took, let's say, 10,000 years the first time into maybe just a century, maybe just a generation? Could you accelerate that whole process by leapfrogging to exactly the places that you know you want to get to as your society recovers? But you can be more clever than even that, I think. You cannot just accelerate that process. You can start making decisions now about what technologies you might Want to recover which ones you might have learned your lesson from that perhaps they're not worth um, getting involved in, and in particular, if, if society were to ever have to restart again after the fall of our own civilization, they would have to do so without access to the readily available energy of, of crude oil because us, our civilization, has already sucked up all of the easily suck upable crude oil. We're now talking about you know licking. Uh, grains of sand and, and kind of some of the least accessible crude oil reserves that, that are left on the planet. So if we did reboot, we'd probably have to go through something of a green reboot. We wouldn't have access to that easy resource of, of energy that crude oil provided for us, and, and and particularly in the transport sector. Clearly,
1: crude oil and petrol and diesel have been really, really useful. But we'd potentially want to go for a greener route. We'd, we'd have seen the impact and potentially the apocalypse uh, a a kind of a cause of all of that if an apocalypse ever did wipe most of us out or we did have to rebuild after one it probably would have been down to the impact that we've had on the earth so at that point you know with 2020 hindsight we're thinking how can we make sure that doesn't happen again (laughs) um so in 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 essence and in a way starting from scratch would be um Without saying, I think we need an apocalypse (laughs) would be a really good thing for humanity, potentially. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'd love to believe that
0: you were right. That point of view was was valid. But I suspect even if so, the sort of things that might cause an apocalypse could be something like, you know, a super volcano eruption or asteroid impact or a a nuclear war or some kind of pandemic outbreak. Or it could be something that we have done to the Earth ourselves inadvertently with climate change collapsing global agriculture or, you know, some kind of ecological uh, catastrophe that we've brought upon ourselves. And I would love to believe that the, the kind of post-collapse people would have this collective memory. They would have it stored and recorded in their own history as to what the people that came before them did and therefore learn from that mistake and never make it again. I just don't think we're that responsible. And I wonder if... People do things that is easy for them in the short term, and when we see that so much in kind of politics and kind of short term thinking in the modern world, and it might well be true that even post a ecological collapse, an ecological catastrophe, as people are recovering, they just do what is easiest for them to do. It gives them the, the short term gains, and they worry about the future because, well, you know, that's twenty years away, that's thirty years away, that's my grandchildren or my grandchildren's grandchildren's problem. I'll just do whatever you know is, is best for me. I wonder if there's a certain element of that,
1: you know, kind of encoded in our in our makeup, in our our kind of psychology. Do you think part of that is because of the convenient nature of the modern world we're living in? And if we were to rebuild, we would potentially, although maybe highly unlikely, build a less convenient world where people felt the need to contribute. I was actually speaking to Danette Wallace about what the world might look like without money. If we were to start again, would we... Would we invent money again? She says probably not, at least not from her point of view. And and I mentioned that surely people have an inherent greediness. Surely they, they'll want money because they'll want to be earning more than the person below them and, and all this stuff. But she says we're not inherently greedy. It's just a product of the system we're created in. Do you think if we created a different system, perhaps we'd we'd have a different outlook on life, maybe a system where we didn't necessarily... Uh, work for a living but instead we did passions which allowed us to thrive and live within a community Uh, maybe we would feel a little bit more responsible for our actions.
0: Yeah I mean there are different ways of setting up a society of building society and, and governing it and throughout the pages of the knowledge I never prescribe what you ought to do. I mean, as a, as a community of post-apocalyptic survivors in this hypothetical scenario, you can build whatever society you like. You can have whatever political system of governance you like. You, you can have a democracy. You might go down a much more kind of hardcore socialist into kind of communist route. I mean, you can govern yourselves however you see fit. And what the knowledge talks about is there will still be some universals of what you need or want to do in terms of providing for yourself, And making sure you don't go hungry or you don't get sick and die or to make your life more comfortable and less kind of full of hardship and and backbreaking labor. So there are alternatives to the way that the kind of Western capitalism system is set up. But I would struggle to see how a society could cope without money. Like money isn't an engine of greed. It it might enable it to make it easier. But money was fundamentally invented thousands of years ago to make trade easier. I grow wheat, you grow sheep. I don't have to eat bread all day. You don't have to eat mutton all day. So (laughs) why don't I give you some of my bread, you give me some of my sheep. Well, what's the exchange rate between bread and sheep? Well, I don't know, because I'm not going to harvest for another three months. So I haven't got anything to actually give you now. Why don't we just all agree to make little bits of metal that can stand for the value of something, and we can exchange things so much more easily and reliably with this money with this currency, these coins that we just invented. So I, I I struggle to see how any society going even back to the most simple structures
1: of agrarian economies, how, how that could even work is, without money. So do you think if we were rebuilding, we would come up with, say, say we had some of the knowledge, but not all of it, we would come up with some of the same things that we've come up with now to create society? Do you think although we've fumbled our way through the 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 thousands of years to to take us here, many of the constructs that we decided on are just the right ones, the the perfect ones, the ones which we would have decided on if we had ten years to do it, uh, or, or opposed to ten thousand years. Yeah,
0: I think so. And I think you can you could do kind of
1: you know comparative history or
0: comparative civilization studies on this. That some things are invented, if you like, time after time after time, by peoples all over the world. And in particular, in, in our history, where you had uh, Eurasia and the Americas, were essentially independent experiments in civilization that, and this is what I talk about in the new book, in, in Origins, How the Earth Made Us. Humanity migrated out of our birthplace in, in East Africa about 65,000 years ago, dispersed in, around the entire world, and we were able to walk from, basically kind of eastern Siberia, across the Bering Land Bridge, because the sea levels were so low with the Ice Age, into the Americas. So we, we populated the whole western hemisphere as well and then with the end of the ice age and the sea levels rising again, those two halves of humanity became isolated and separated each other from each other for thousands of years until Columbus and you know European seafarers reestablished that contact. And so there's, there's been these independent experiments in what people do when they settle down and develop societies and civilizations for themselves and some things were universal, but the development of writing and recording information, the development of money as, as a mechanism for commerce and trade and exchanging labor, the establishment of laws and punishment. So the beginnings of a legal system to make sure that people are fair with each other in society. No one t- takes too much of an advantage. So I, th- I think those things, because they arise uh, time and time again, you could argue they are necessary constructs for society to function Um, function well so those are the sort of things that would naturally arise again I think after some kind of reset after some kind of reboot but if you're clever about it you could try to get and establish those systems as quickly as you can to
1: help nurture your society and help put it up by its own bootstraps so just because we almost have to invent these structures to make society work and it seems like we have done time and time again it doesn't mean that we can't do them better is what you're saying
0: Yeah, so I think things like money are necessary, but I think with hindsight, you might find ways of regulating it better or kind of setting up the system better so that it runs more fluidly and and more fairly. I mean, so far we've been talking about social constructs and the majority of what I focus on in the knowledge is the knowledge and, and understanding that is going to be most useful for you. And so to pick one example from really basic chemistry is that you're going to want to make alkalis for yourself. So alkalis the the opposite of of acids. People might remember this from chemistry lessons in school, but they are a really fundamentally useful tool, a chemical tool for making things that are useful for us. And use alkalis to make uh, soap from animal fat to stop the spread of disease and, and stop you getting sick. You can use potash and soda ash uh, in, this, in the milk making of glass, which is a fundamentally useful material because it's both strong and completely transparent. And there's nothing else that you can make using simple technology that is both transparent and strong in the way that glass is. And soda ash and potash are, are fundamental for all of those processes. And there's a very simple way of, of extracting that from the natural environment for yourself. And you can get potash by just burning... Hardwood, burning trees, burning timber, which you can be doing anyway, for, for supporting your society and then trickling water through the ashes left behind to dissolve out the potassium carbonate, the potash, which you can then dry and crystallize, to then use as a, as a chemical tool. And the soda ash comes from burning seaweed and then trickling water to the ashes again. So with that little bit of, of knowledge, you can accelerate a whole number of things, not just one area, but a number of areas across the society all at the same time because you just know how to do something useful because it's been written down, recorded and preserved in this sort of save file, this backup of civilization, which is what I wrote the knowledge as, as this kind of premise for a thought experiment.
1: I feel like your um, book needs to be encased in like a nuclear resistant case or something so that when it does <laughs> all go down, <laughs> at least one person's got a copy of the knowledge. <laughs> well, this is like, so
0: I always tell people after I've done a talk on the knowledge, at you know, literary festival something that uh, not only should they buy a copy for themselves and everyone else they love, they should buy a spare copy and put it in a, in a, in a metal box, <laughs> there in the box in their garden to, uh, to try to protect it. So actually one of the um, things I had a lot of fun with in the knowledge is in principle, only a single copy of this book would need to survive the apocalypse because it tells you how to reproduce itself, that the knowledge can replicate itself like an organism, like, like a virus because it contains information inside. it, a bit like DNA inside an organism and the knowledge, the book tells you how to make your own paper from scratch. It tells you how to make your own ink, and it tells you how to construct your own rudimentary printing press. So the I've got to say, its
1: not a very good business model, you know. Well, well I would, <laughs> until the uh, the uh, collapse
0: of society, I will come after you with my lawyers if you're trying to break the <laughs> copyright protection. Right? But let's say, let's say that say that legal system has collapsed, and you are trying to spread that knowledge amongst everyone that needs it in your society. The book tells you how to copy books. It tells you how to make a printing press. So in that sense, you would only need to preserve a single copy and just make sure you can get to it, and then you could kind of replicate that information um, by reprinting it for everyone that needs it. It'd
1: be like a scientific Bible, in a way. In, in a sense, yeah, yeah in, in a sense.
0: There's a, a great book by um, Will Self called The Book of Dave, where a racist, bigoted London taxi driver, a cabbie, has written a diary, which happens to be the only book that survives the, the Holocaust, the apocalypse. And this post-apocalypse society finds his diary and it adopts it almost as their kind of holy book, as their religious text, the, the Book of Dave, um, which is you know, it's, it's an allegory, it's an allegorical tale, but it, it's for her thinking about it, it's a fun idea.
1: Yeah, because that's another issue I'd like to get into is whether religion is inherent in the human species and whether that would just come out naturally again, uh, even if we were left with no knowledge of previous religions, whether we would just decide on something because that's kind of deep rooted within our within our psyche. But um, talking about the world that you, you envisage could be built out of the knowledge after an apocalypse, how long would it be a rudimentary world where we're still scrabbling around to try and make everything fit?
0: It very much depends on how many people have survived in your post-apocalyptic society what skill sets and knowledge they have you know what what they can actually do but also what was the actual nature of the apocalypse or the fall in the first place so if i were to give you a a menu of (laughs) an apocalyptic menu these are the, the disasters and catastrophes you have to choose from in order to then try and rebuild again afterwards i would strongly recommend you do not tick Uh, all-out nuclear holocaust, nuclear war or asteroid strike uh, on that menu. And actually what might be the best way for the world to end, as it were, at least in terms of the the point of view of the survivors trying to reboot as quickly again as possible afterwards, Mm -hmm. would be some kind of global pandemic, some kind of fast-spreading disease, pathogen, that wipes out a lot of the humans, wipes out the, the human population, but leaves a lot of the stuff left lying around. So there'll be a lot of things to scavenge and forage for the surviving uh, community whilst they go through this grace period of relearning and rediscovering how to make and do everything they need for themselves from scratch. You'd you'd have this kind of buffer period, this grace period while you learnt. So for example, you you could scavenge cans of food for a couple of decades from, from abandoned supermarkets whilst you learn the basics of farming and agriculture and how you walk out into a muddy field and chuck some seeds in the ground and have food come out of it six months later. And then how you stop yourself starving
1: to death. So there are many caveats to just how successful the rebuilding of society would be. Do you think under the tick box of all out nuclear holocaust, we could um, we could still rebuild eventually?
0: I, I mean, eventually, yeah, but it would be very hard in the immediate aftermath. Because if you're near any of the cities that were hit by the nukes or the surrounding countryside where the fallout landed, like the ground itself is, is poisoned, it's radioactive. And, and that will, you know, can disperse over the, over the coming years and decades and centuries, but it's going to be hard to keep yourself healthy in large areas of the planet after an all-out nuclear war. And, in, and then, in fact, the problem isn't so much for a sufficiently big nuclear war, the problem isn't so much the radioactivity and the fallout, is that so much kind of dust and smoke is chucked up into the upper atmosphere you start blocking out um, the sunlight. You trigger a, a nuclear winter, it's called, which is very similar to the immediate effects of, a, of an asteroid strike as well. So under those conditions, the climate starts getting exceedingly cold because you're blocking out most of the sunshine. And under those conditions, you would, you would struggle enormously to reboot rapidly after, after that catastrophe compared to something like a pandemic where the environment is still the same it's still basically habitable and clement there's just no people left around so you have to relearn the skills that those people had as part of the society.
1: I think quite fortunately to actually make a nuclear winter happen you'd have to throw thousands of nukes all in kind of one small space um, and throw them all at the same time and well, I mean then... I mean, that's the nature of war is someone's
0: as soon as someone starts chucking nukes, everyone else can start chucking their nukes before they can't chuck the nukes you know that's that's the, that's the principle that's of of mutual assured destruction and, and and preemptive first strikes that that was the very premise of the entire cold war is if 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 there is even a
1: hint of the other side about to start chucking their nukes, you have to go all out first I'm just wondering whether you ever worry about some of the Tick boxes on your on nu- your newer, uh, apocalyptic menu, sort of coming to fruition. Because although the nuclear war thing might might not have as big an impact as we might expect, unless there are literally thousands of nukes thrown, something like uh, a global pandemic which wipes out half of civilization, you know, with the rising tide of antibiotic resistance, that is a real possibility that we could be facing in the future.
0: Yeah, so th- there are a number of, of hazards that that could that are existential threats that, that could pose a genuine hazard to our way of life to our civilization and, and the human population um from antibiotic resistance to pandemic outbreaks i mean i mean i'm, I'm as i said I, the only reason i use the apocalypse is as the premise for thought experiments yes. the way of <laughs> asking the question how does stuff work behind the scenes that we take for granted if, if it all disappeared tomorrow what could any one of us do about it and therefore how we should appreciate what we do have and just take. And you know, I, I found it fascinating discovering all this kind of stuff when I was researching the knowledge. And hopefully, readers take away a lot of interesting uh, material and, and stuff from it as well. I, I I don't actually think the world is about to end. I'm not some kind of <laughs> doomsday nuts with the end of the world is nigh a placard around my chest. But having said that, that is not to deny that some of these risks aren't real. They are unlikely, but they will become
1: a lot more likely if we don't take them seriously uh, in order to try and prevent them. Because I'm just I'm just thinking, although this podcast itself is also a thought experiment, just like the knowledge. Um, yeah. I'm wondering whether one day, you know, people will need to turn to us. <laughs> well, one one can hope so. The, I think it's a very common uh, like pub chat um,
0: as to which of your group of friends. Let's say you get to pick a dream team of six <laughs> people, six mates, for your post-apocalyptic survival team. Which of your friends would, would you choose? And I probably wouldn't go for Colin, the accountant or. You know, Dave, the <laughs> management consultant. I'd, I'd go for people, friends that have got genuine, useful, hands on, practical skills like carpentry or metalworking or oh, that engineering rules me around, and mechanics <laughs> or growing food. Like, those are the people that are actually useful if our society becomes suddenly a lot simpler and <laughs> and we're well, not Ollie the on, podcast I'm maker not... doesn't fit the bill then. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I don't know. I mean, People are still going to want to be entertained even after the apocalypse. So there will be a lot of. It's, it's not just going to be all doom and gloom and and kind of and recovery. There's um, again, there's a lovely book called I think Station Eleven, and it's about a, a touring group of of actors and how they bring hope uh, to the communities after 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 an apocalypse. And so clearly, people that tell stories, journalists and, and, and broadcasters, they they will have important skills as well. It's just the accounts are going to have to, I mean, they're going to have to run fast, otherwise they will be cannibalised, is, is
1: all I'm saying. <laughs> um, survival of the fittest and all that. Well, fight. it all gets very Darwinian again very quickly. If we take all of the sciencey stuff from your book and, and use that purely as the method by which we rebuilt civilization, um do you think all of the other stuff would just fit alongside it, we would we'd still be able to create all the societal constructs without a separate book? Or do you think the knowledge kind of covers it all?
0: I mean, it's a great point. And I, I, I am a scientist. I wrote the book, the knowledge as a science and history book, not as a sociological or political uh, or psychological book. So, you know, there's only so much stuff you can cram into 300 pages. And so I chose to focus on what I found most fascinating, which was the kind of science technology of how our modern world works. But clearly if you are starting out from scratch, things like sociology and politics and then psychology are going to be absolutely critical. The only reason I didn't really talk about them in the book is a lot of science and technology can be reduced to its absolutes, to its universals, to its, to its quintessence. You, you can explain the basic working premise of a windmill or an internal combustion engine enough that someone could have a very good idea of how to reinvent it. Without having to go kind of, you know, without having to literally invent the wheel, I have to go right back to scratch. You can't really do the same with politics. And I, I kind of toyed with having this kind of twee 10 step guide to redeveloping a parliamentary democracy. After <laughs> I just realized how like, absurd <laughs> it was that, that a lot of this social structure has to develop in its own time. You, you can't tell someone that they should suddenly have a democracy. Because that requires a lot of um, release of power from whoever happens to be the leader, or whoever happens to have the most guns at the time. So the reason that democracy developed, parliamentary democracy developed in Britain was because there was this slow, gradual process of, uh, you know, succession of power away from the king, away from the crown to the barons and then to the, you know, the, then to the, the muggles, then to the, um, to the, the kind of uh, everyday people. And I don't know how much that could be accelerated. Whereas the science and technology, if you tell someone the key operating principle behind something, they can have a very good shot of of, of accelerating
1: that that process of rediscovery. So I'm going to put you in a situation where we have been mostly wiped out, but not through anything too devastating. And you are one of the 20 or 30 remaining people in, in your immediate vicinity. You've got the knowledge to hand what is the first thing lewis dartnell does (laughs) so i mean chapter one of the knowledge is
0: it's a bit like kind of post-apocalyptic bear grill stuff that the book is not a wilderness survival book it's not about preppers and, and survivalism but i play around with some of those ideas in the first chapter of if you do literally wake up tomorrow to find the ruins of our civilization smoking around you how can you apply modern understanding to keep yourself alive, to stop yourself dying. And there's a very useful trick, like clearly one of the most important things is water. You will die very quickly without clean water. And what you want to be able to ensure is that the water you're about to put to your lips and drink is not gonna kill you. It's not laced with waterborne diseases like typhoid or cholera or any number of other diseases that have been the scourge of humanity um, for, for thousands of years. And you can apply modern understanding to ensure that you can preserve the knowledge of, of germ theory and the idea that it's invisibly small creatures in the water that get inside your body and make you sick. It's not bad air. It's not malaria, as, you know, that people used to think. And there's a very, very simple technique to use science to know for a fact that your water is safe to drink. And all you need to do is put your suspect water into an empty plastic bottle and just leave it out in the direct sunshine for a day or two. And because you've constrained that water to be very shallow, the ultraviolet rays in the sunshine can, strain, can shine straight through that water and kill or inactivate any of the germs in it. You can come back to that water a day or two later, put it to your lips and drink it and know for a fact, know because of science, that it's safe to do so. So that, wow. this is essentially a kind of
1: post-apocalyptic life hack that could genuinely save your life if you preserve that, that understanding it's really fascinating um so that's the first thing you do what happens when um they see your name on this book which they're using to rebuild society and then they start to revere you what then <laughs> you know I don't know could my ego
0: allow myself to tell them that I shouldn't be worshipped anymore I would it'd be
1: nice for kind of a, a week or two wouldn't it do you reckon yeah I think so I could definitely do it for a week or two maybe a year <laughs> <laughs> but um I mean, it's a kind of
0: fun thing to think about. So the way I, I explored this thought experiment was by imagining a post-apocalyptic society trying to reboot. You can ask exactly the same question about going back to basics and understanding how things work on a fundamental level by imagining you've fallen through a time warp to 10,000 B.C. And you want to make yourself like the legend. You want to make yourself the guy who knows how to do everything that people need to do and then kind of grow your, your kind of culture from scratch when everyone else was kind of living in caves and just starting to work out that the beginnings of agriculture. Um, so there's different ways of kind of phrasing that, that, that same question. And I think that they're fun to play with. I think a lot of these are almost like wish fulfillment dreams. And I think the reason that people enjoy films like Mad Max is because we like to imagine what we would do in a similar situation when you know, you're kind of fending for yourself and you're having to be self-reliant. and There's no
1: rules or laws that you have to follow. What would you do in that situation? How would you get by? Hmm. I'd I'd probably be the first to die, to be honest. I'll I'll be uh, frank, here. (laughs) (laughs) Lewis Dartnell, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ollie. Cheers. Thanks to Professor Lewis Dartnell and thanks to you for listening. For more episodes, you can find Starting From Scratch wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting ogpodcast.co.uk.